Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I got home last night and I had a package on my doorstep and it was from Green Chef, who are my sponsors for this series. I was absolutely blown away with what was inside. Not only did they have the step-by-step recipe cards in there, but they had all the ingredients and as fresh as you can get them. Last night, I cooked the duck in balsamic glaze, which I'd never tried before. These pre-portioned ingredients allowed me to try this new flavor completely risk-free And I was able to eat the exact right amount of these ingredients. Not only that, but they had tender stem broccoli. How many other food boxes send tender stem broccoli? It was unbelievably delicious, and I can't recommend it enough. Their high-quality, fresh seasonal ingredients just blew me away. And it's allowed me to eat consistently and have a routine whilst eating healthily. So get 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes with the code GREENSTRONG. That's GREENSTRONG for 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes. Hello and welcome back to Headstrong. My name is Louis Strong and I host this podcast. This is a podcast where I sit down and chat to a load of people in the public eye. From actors, sportsmen and women, YouTubers, the list goes on. And I talk to them about their lives and their careers. But notably, I talk to them about their vulnerabilities because I want to understand what the word headstrong means to them. Joining me on today's episode is the former pro cyclist, David Miller. I have to say, as a massive cycling fan, this is one of my favorite episodes that I have ever recorded. 
David was incredibly honest and talked to me about his experiences with performance-enhancing drugs. What that did to him mentally and how that's affected him in the long term and how he still carries the weight of those things today. I really hope you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. David, thank you very much for joining me on Headstrong. I really appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure, Louis. It's a pleasure. It's, um, it's no. an interesting concept. It, it, I hope so. I hope you're going to yeah. enjoy it. Um, so we've got, a, for the next hour or so, we'll just have a chit-chat and see, see where it goes. But you've kind of planned it in a way for me with your, your clothing brand, aptly named. Uh, so you are in chapter three of your life. But chronologically, I'm going to go through it myself, yeah. hit chapters one and two, and probably go to the prologue before. Um, so you kind of had a unique start to your life, but albeit the only one you ever knew, following military bases. Yeah. Which to me is an abstract concept, but to you must have seemed very normal. I think it's an abstract concept now um, because the Cold War is essentially over and the, the, the British military is no longer the thing it once was, where there were bases and colonial bases uh, around the world. And so, yeah, I, I grew up in that. And it's my, um, my father's a wing commander of the Royal Air Force and my godfather was a, uh, a Royal Marine. And so it was just, just, I didn't know any different. Um, but now looking back, it's something that does seem like from, it's very almost Victorian, but don't go far, so just 20, it's very 20th century, uh, yeah. how, how influential the military was back then. I mean, that's, that's fascinating in itself. Where did education and sport fit in in that world? Was it the school on site? Uh, no, I went to, so I was born in Malta, uh, and I was yeah. in Malta until I was, um, just after I was one year old, then moved to the very north of Scotland, Forres, um, which is where they had the, the Nimrod bases, that's where they based the submarine hunters, and we went to the local schools. Um, a couple of times we lived on bases, um, but quite briefly, just used as a vehicle to then find a house nearby, and so it, it was quite a transient lifestyle. Uh, yeah, it was um, it was pretty magical. I mean, some of my earliest memories are, are playing in hangars as a as a kid in the north of Scotland and rolling down kind of grass covered kind of secret bunkers and and being around planes. Um, which as a kid, I mean, that was my passion when I was until I was about eight, seven or eight was were military planes, and I got to sit in Vulcans and Nimrods and helicopters, and it, it was cool. It was a kid's dream, really. That is cool. I'm actually not far from RAF Benson. Ah, yeah. Uh, I I hear. Well, one of my colleagues, his wife, uh, husband, is one of the mechanic, uh, one of the pilots on one of the helicopters. So he organised like a flyover, all of them in in tandem, and in. Oh, it was really cool. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. nothing so beats when, it. When did um where did cycling fit in in your early memory then? How, how can uh, you remember that? It was. It's, so I don't come from a very sporting family, my my parents are more STEM people, um, and th- there was no sport whatsoever in my family. So for me, it was it was more just following the crazes. I, I, was, I was quite a loner, so I, I I would be a, and it was 1980s. So BMX was booming, skating was booming, and so I, I just loved those. And I loved doing sports that weren't part of school curriculum because uh, I, I disliked school. And so I, I chose sports that got me out of there. So I was into art. I was quite in Congress and I loved art and I loved sport, uh, which is quite a rare combination. And so for me, it was simply an escape. It was just something that I got to go and do on my own and go on adventures and, and 
yeah, it was it was fun and it was challenging. So sport was very much something that I always just it was my own little vehicle next to art to just avoid everybody. It was a, it's a form of escape, as you say. Then it's something that you could just devote your time into and forget everything else. Very much so. It was to, it was the one thing that I could take to different places that I didn't have to rely upon anybody for, and and it was fun. It was just so much fun going out BMXing and skating and doing those different things. It was, you know, that it was so, looking back the nineteen eighties where those sports, those alternative sports, started to happen, they, and they were kind of fashionable. You know, you, you kind of they weren't. There was no. It was still young enough those sports not to have codes code they weren't codified they didn't have rules they didn't have clear aesthetics it was it was quite a, a close transference between art and, and and sport at that time and now it's all very it's very codified um but back then it was just rebellion so was did school seem like a formality to you you said yourself that you thought were a bit of a loner why was that? Was that is it because you're you're slightly introverted yourself, or you were as a child particularly, or was it just that school was unenjoyable? I think a, a combination of those things. Um, I the things I loved, which were those sports and arts, weren't really big at school back then, and unless you went to a special sort of school that specialised in them, which even these days are quite rare. Mm. So school just felt like a duty. It was just something I had to do. And even as a kid, I remember that as a kind of single digit kid, it was like, ugh. God, why have I got to go to school? And it was, um, so I was never, and I, I never, and I guess also part of the fact I was always moving around. Um, schools felt, they never felt permanent, you know, it felt kind of like a chore. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to make friends, then change friends. And it wasn't, um, yeah, it just wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea for a better term school. And, and that's challenging on a child and particularly... At the age of 11, another massive event occurred in your life, which can be extremely challenging for somebody going through that, and particularly at a primitive time when your parents divorced. Mm. How how did you cope and indeed deal with that at the time? Being particularly, Um, as you say, on your own. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's it's not, it's horrible for any child to go through that. Um, And I think it was... It was just, it kind of summed up it. I, I do remember it being very much like childhood's end when my parents told me they were divorcing. I was like, oh, come on, how dare you? It's now I've got to grow up. And I was, I think, yeah, 11 then. Um, and then just, uh, I think the the reality, I think I'd very much been hiding from what the world was going to be. And although I was, I mean, introverts are strong works. I'm not sure if I am or not. I was very shy, mm. um, but simply in a self-preservation way. I didn't, you know, there wasn't much point in putting myself out there because it felt like nothing was very permanent. So I would just keep to myself. And then at that point, it was, oh. and I can't really remember much of my childhood after that point. Um, I mean, before then, it was almost kind of, I was like, erased it to a certain degree and then just got on with the rest of my life. Without dwelling on it too much and please tell me to move on if you want me mm. to is it quite a numbing experience then in a sense that you've had to blank it out yeah i think it was a very numbing experience it was it was a case of um yeah I, you know what? i haven't really got my head around it to this day um sure. and it's one of those things that i think you i've deliberately numbed it out because i didn't yeah i didn't like it happening 
No, absolutely. So, well, yeah. you subsequently did move to Hong Kong. Um, yeah. And that, in a, in, a, in a way, was a fantastic place for you to, to have gone. Yeah. Um, you you yeah. loved it, didn't you? I loved it. I loved Hong Kong. I was in, because I was living in, where we'd moved down to England is near a town called Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. Absolutely. And, and I went to, well, I think that's around the area where you live now, um, in the home counties. But I went to Aylesbury Grammar School and it was, and I, I described it recently to somebody, it's like a Lowry painting. I can still remember kind of getting off the bus, getting the bus there and then getting off and walking from the bus station and by the canal and it was all grey and black and white and, yeah. and it was very rough school. I was, I was just at grammar school now it's a fabulous school. I went back there last year and it's just amazing. But at the time it was it was still quite rough and you know there's nothing worse than getting a bunch of smart boys from a mixture of backgrounds together because it's Lord of the Flies. It was just crazy. A very mean, good reference, yeah. Yeah, I kind of loved it. But at the same time, when the option came to go to Hong Kong, because my, my dad moved over there and my mum stayed in England, I was like, I'm going to Hong Kong. Bugger this. It was no. kind of moving out of that Lowry painting into a Technicolor kind of movie. And it was, I, I had an amazing five years out there. And I was 12, 13 when I went out there. And my adolescence was spent in Hong Kong. And it was, it was just like it genuinely was like being in a movie it was kind of just crazy how cool it was back then so it was just in the, the years pre handover in 1997 mm. so so there was this buzz about the place it was like it's the end it's the end of hong kong and so the energy i mean the energy to this day is crazy in hong kong but back then it was just and it still had the bastions of the old Hong Kong and colonialism, where you all had your different clubs. You went to the cricket clubs, the yacht clubs. You all had membership cards. We were in King George the Oldest School there, so we were in all our old school uniforms. This beautiful Art Deco school, and yet one kilometre away was Mong Kok, the most densely populated square kilometre in the world. And I'd go there with my friend Rogero, who was half Chinese, half Italian, and we'd be going down into these deep triad, like arcade Chinese places, to play video games at lunch. And so there was this real kind of juxtaposition of this old school colonial britain and then this hardcore chinese craziness so it was it, it was magical what a world it's it's complete as you say completely removed from what you probably were so familiar with at the time it was uh, it was magic and then, but then at the same time that's that's where i carried on with my sports i kind of went over there and that's when mountain biking started booming so, and in, in that in the same breath then we're talking about sports there um, because something that I have read in, in the preparation of this is that you got up early to mm. do a lot of your cycling before school or before anything mm. happened. For, for a young man to have that motivation to do so, I think is really impressive because you think about now, and this is very much a generalized thing, but I think there are less and less children who feel uh, motivated to get up and do something like that. Um, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I do. But I mean, I wouldn't say that's the blame of the generation today, we didn't have internet. You didn't no. have, you know, the, the number of distractions. I read books and, and rode bikes and played basketball and skated. You know, that's what I did with my off time. And the cycling just started to kind of become uh, more, a bigger and bigger part. I can remember coming home from school in the first, I'd race in, have a ball of cereal and get kids up and go out on my mountain bike. And that was just what I do. And then it was, so yeah, it's, I was very lucky. I, I genuinely, if it, if it was today, I probably wouldn't be. I'd probably be scrolling Instagram or playing Fortnite. But it was, um, <laughs> you know, back then, it was, I'm so pleased I was, I was of that generation where we, we still couldn't get as distracted as we do now. 
No, you're absolutely right. Now, but another adoration of yours that we have t- slightly touched on there is art. Now, where did that fit in at the same time? Because you were juggling perhaps the choice of, and as we all know, you were going to go to arts college, mm. um, but then found yourself in the depths of France um, winning races. And here we are yeah. uh, with a cycling career later. Yeah, it was, um, it is, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty rare combination. And I think it was one of the love, one of the reasons I ended up falling in love with road racing in the Tour de France because it was so romantic and so mm. it was almost artistic. You know, it was kind of it was still quite. It, it's not like the big sports. It, I was big into NBA at the time and all these and motor racing, but cycling felt like such a cult niche sport that no one really knew about in the 1990s in the Anglo-Saxon world. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to go and race mountains. And that felt, there was something quite artistic about that. But, but for me, the big thing was, like, I discovered very quickly that I was exceptional at cycling. And when I had that bar, I was very aware that I wasn't as exceptional as I, in art. You know, it just wasn't, I didn't, didn't come to me as easily as, as sport. Sport was, was genetically predisposed for. Art, I, I could draw, I could, I appreciated, but it didn't have the magic that, that and that, that might also be environments because I think you'll often see, I mean, this is something, often you'll see artists or actors like yourself or creatives come from a creative family and a creative background. Uh, athletes come from athletic families and sporting families. Uh, my family weren't into art or sport. So I was just making it up as I went along. So I would just choose the one that I was better at and then build it myself. And so that's how I made that decision. Um, it was just because I was like, oh, I'm better at this. And, and it felt like a, a realistic possibility, whereas there was no kind of profession to really look forward to as an artist that's interesting uh, so you talked about you've talked about your individuality uh, in your kind of adulthood and early uh, early adulthood and your your late childhood so was that very much your own decision then there was no external factors uh, manipulating your thought process um it was just you going Do you know what i am better at this this is the direction i'm going yeah i mean it was because my, my parents were divorced. So I lived with my father in Hong Kong and my sister lived with my mum in England. And my sister and I would, would cross in the air for school holidays. I'd go and visit my mum. And my, my mother had moved since I'd moved to Hong Kong, so I didn't know anybody there. So she joined me up to a local cycling club. And I started, again, just turning up and learning as I went along and started winning races and enjoyed that, enjoyed winning and enjoyed kind of getting put on the national team and I then come back to Hong Kong and have another life which was kind of probably a more creative life and then my school holiday life was very much the sporting life yet I think for me it was a case of just what really made it was when I was there and doing it everyone started to say it wouldn't be possible for me to go to the Tour de France or or turn pro and I took that as a, a challenge as a kind of a front and that ended up being probably the biggest motivator was the fact at the time everyone told me it was impossible to do what I thought was possible and so I was just like bugger this I'm not going to art college I want to prove everybody wrong and so I I said to my mum can I can I go and do can I go to Belgium (laughs) instead of going to art college and race bikes she said you can but you defer your place so I deferred my place and um and that's how it all started really but it was that just that yeah 
so you won a variety of races and then it wasn't long and quite literally it was not long at all was it when you had kind of professional offers on the cards now you talked about there uh, your choices of having um go, going with the better what you're better at was it the same with the contract then because you had a, a four or five didn't you on the team mm. yeah exactly which direction you were going to go with those yeah it was a case of because I'd read lots of books in Hong Kong and a bit of the history of the sport, and one of the, the people that stood out was a guy called Cyril Guimard, who was a French uh, ex-pro cyclist who managed uh, Bernardino, Laurent Fignon, um, Greg LeMond, and this list of riders. And he had this amazing ability to, to turn young riders into Tour de France winners. And he came to the town where I was living at the time and took me out to lunch and gave me a career plan for five years. And it was the most surreal experience. And that was the, the reason I ended up going with the team I did because it was Cyril Guimard and it was a great honor to be approached by him and to have him believe in me. So yeah, I was, I was very fortunate, but that all happened. I was 19 years old and so it all happened in six months really. So it was, it was kind of overwhelming and I made the decision emotionally rather than rationally. It was, mm. it's, it's, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best decision, but at the time, I didn't have advice. I was just of going, a young man, hey? Exactly. <laughs> it was just young and stupid. <laughs> but but it was uh, yeah, it's surreal looking back. But it was um that's that's how it all happened so quickly. And I ended up in this big French team called Coffees. And we all know. But yeah. hey, hey, but so let's there's there's a load of things that I want to talk about, particularly with this podcast. Um, being so heavily um, focused on well-being and mental well-being specifically. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere that I want to start is discussing loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I've read before that, you know, when you, when you came back after winning a, a stage and you're going to be in the yellow jersey the next day and you just went, well, I'm now on my own, I'm in my hotel room. Mm-hmm. What is that feeling like? Because you're on the, on the tour you're doing a long season as a professional cyclist. You rarely get to see your family. And ultimately, you are alone except with your colleagues. Mm. They may well turn into friends, but they are your colleagues first and foremost. What's that experience like? Um, it creeps up on you because I did my first Tour de France when I was 23. So if we think about when I had that meeting with Cyril Guimard when I was 19, so when I was 23, I was pretty much a hermit. I, I lived in a town called Biarritz in the southwest of France, beautiful place. But I moved there to be away from other professional cyclists because although I was a professional cyclist, I didn't really relate with them. I, I didn't, didn't want to be a professional cyclist. I wanted to carry on, kind of mix that creative side and different things. But what that did mean was I isolated myself massively. So all my friends were in Hong Kong, or at that point, all at university, scattered across the world. So in my off-season, I'd visit them and, and party with them like a student, then go back to my 10, 11-month hermit life. And it was, um, it was all for a purpose, for a cause. I was going to become, I was one of the best cyclists in the world and, and hopefully win the Tour de France one day. So I did my first Tour de France in 2000 and I won the first stage beating Lance Armstrong. And I got the yellow jersey. It was a dream. And I lived for three weeks in that bubble. Um, and then when I flew home the day after the race, I got back to my apartment in Biarritz and in the sink was the bowl of cereal, empty bowl of cereal that I just chucked in the sink rushing out to get the plane. And I had no one to call and no friends to, to hang out with, to share it with. And I thought, oh, shit, I got it wrong. 
because I was I'd, I'd done it. I was on the path, but I realised that I was I'd isolated myself so much that I was had nobody to share it with, and that was a, a very. That's when all of a sudden the loneliness hit home because I'd been lonely of the years previous, um, but it had been for a cause. And you kind of think, well, once I do it, then it'll all be fine. And then I started to realise, oh no, this isn't fine, is it? And that's when I started to really kind of realise that maybe I was going too far and that I wouldn't be able to manage the loneliness. Sure. And so what was your first step in initially tackling loneliness as, in, as that as an entity? Um, well, I, I, I'd overdo it if I went out when I did have my social breaks. I'd go out, I'd drink too much, I'd be binge overly social. Binge for it, basically binge socialising and mm. kind of trying to do too many things at once, talk to too many people, kind of, and then switch it off again. And that then became, became quite a, uh, a bad behavioural habit because I'd either be completely off and disappear from everybody or I'd be on and be over the top and just switch on, off, on, off, on, off. And it became this vicious cycle um, and quite a descending spiral. Uh, and it's, a, it's actually that behaviour that, that led me to doping because it was the year after when I, I kind of got to the point where I was, well, I've got nothing else in my life. This is why, let's, let's just go for it now. Let's, I gave in to, in order to win it in France, I was going to have to, sorry, it's my dogs are going nuts. Um, I was going to have to uh, commit and, and be like everybody else. And I didn't have that group around me, that, that village, if you like, metaphorical village to, to support me because I had no one to talk to. Uh, so I created, I'd become my own worst enemy. And that loneliness actually got me to the point where I didn't really have anything else to, nobody to guide me or support me. And it brought out the worst in me. Ah, absolutely. And now I know, I, I obviously have done a lot of reading and I've read a, a variety of books on the history of the sport in, in particularly that era. And so I, I'm, I feel versed enough in that. And I'm not going to ask you any, anything in particular about that. But because I know because I know that everyone was pretty much doing it mm. um, in that sense. But were you yourself because you were a young adult at that time, you say that you were driven to it. But were you aware that what you were doing was quite literally against the rules and illegal, even though everyone else was doing it? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, I think uh, we all did. It was mm. kind of a... But the, the problem was it was so institutionalised that although it was um, uh, known, because everyone knew it was wrong, wrong, you had to do it in secret, you had to have... Everything was done, uh, two phones, you had secret doctor, you'd go to different countries, you'd... It was, uh, it was a bit mafia-esque. Uh, yet at the same time, within the sports and those racing, the majority knew that was just how you did it. And it wasn't, it was, it was a really, really horrible place at the time because it was essentially a, a criminal culture. And in order to, to survive, you, uh, or you could survive without it. And I had done, I won big races without doping, but in order to win the biggest races, you were going to have to join the mob, basically. And, and I joined the mob and it was uh, that then, accentuated my behavior um because then my loneliness and my times away became even more became secretive i'd go to different countries to go off the grid to to do my doping i'd i'd isolate myself completely then get success not be able to tell anybody what i had been doing lie 
and it just became uh, it it became very destructive. I suppose an enormous question is, and obviously you can only give your opinion. Why did performance enhancing drugs become so normalised and institutionalised within the sport of cycling? Uh, well, it's eighty years, probably a hundred years um, from the very first Tour de France. I mean, if you look at the second Tour de France, I think yeah. the first three riders were were written off the race for cheating. You know, it's just it, it had been part of the sport to the degree where it had become uh, it, it was a doping culture. Um, and everybody knew it was in it. It was brought to light publicly in the 1998 Festina affair. Mm. The thing was, in the 1990s, the drugs started to get much more advanced. And, and, had and a, with a lack of testing. And with a lack of testing. You couldn't test them. You couldn't find... Yeah, there's a lack of testing, plus they didn't have the tests that could actually find the, the products. Uh, and if you go through the history of sports, it had been in the, the, the beginning of the 20th century. It had been to the degree of microdose cyanide kind of like you'd have alcohol you'd have cocaine then you had amphetamines then you had cortisone so there's all eras of doping within the sport mm. and it was in the 1990s where the science got so advanced that you you had epo erythropoietin which was um a, a red blood cell boosting hormone um which is it gave you the same benefit in a syringe that it would take you three weeks at altitude to gain um and so that became the the uh, de rigueur choice of the peloton because it turns it could turn a donkey into a racehorse but it could turn a race could turn a racehorse into a superhero so it was kind of one of those ones where the whole sport changed mm-hmm. and it became a it, it became if you wanted to win a grand tour um a tour de force is a three-week stage race it was widely accepted that you could not do it without epo and so it just became par for the course. And then let's not forget that so it was the same era of Lance Armstrong, who who was using that product, that that drug, and was also at the same time being feted as the greatest athlete on the planet. And so the clean athlete as well. The greatest clean athlete. So it became really complex. Um, you know, everybody was wearing the yellow wristbands. It was he was a hero, and yet within the peloton, everyone knew but you couldn't do anything about it and nobody was doing anything about it. And so it, that's what started to blur the lines. It was, well, Lance is getting away with it. So no one's gonna be able to beat him unless they do the same thing. And so it was, it, it was a very gray and messy. And it, it actually, after a hundred years of the Tour de France by 2003, 2004, I think the breaking point had come. And that's where I was banned in 2004. Yeah. And then, it, then it's taken another 10, 10 years, really, to, to clean it up and turn it into an anti-doping culture versus a doping culture. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head, actually, because I, I remember having all the yellow wristbands. I used to live in near Meribel in France. Yeah. And I, I, lit, I remember I was at, at the Tour de France when Tyler Hamilton got caught. Yeah. I remember it so, so vividly. Yeah, yeah really, really vividly. Mm. Um, now, you, talk, you mentioned it there briefly. So these substances not only can have a massive effect on your um, your life and it causes uh, you know a whirlwind of problems like the lying the loneliness is only furthered but also it affects your physical health you know it can be detrimental in the sense that it weakens your immune system um, to a dramatic effect and I know that the advantages can be there but is it are the risks worth your life because it could it can get to that point yeah, for sure. I mean, it depends on the drugs. The one that would weaken your immune system would be cortisone because that was the most 
dangerous and also a very powerful drug. Um, but mostly there was always this argument that it, it was actually you ended up doing less damage to yourself because it was, but then physically, yes, but you were doing a lot of damage to yourself mentally. Mm. And because you were taking your body perhaps beyond what you should be able to do, which meant you were taking your head beyond what it should be able to do. And, and I think lots of athletes handled it differently. I didn't handle it very well. I was riddled with guilt and, and knew it was wrong. And I only did a handful of times. Um, yet still it, it, it weighed heavily on me. Others were totally immune to the effect psychologically. They just saw nothing wrong with it whatsoever, slept well at night, and, and were absolutely fine. But regards to the actual physical thing, it was only in the early mid early 1990s, mid-1990s, when that drug EPO first came on the scene, where certain athletes started to abuse it, um, particularly in cross-country skiing and mm. a few professional cyclists, where they did die from EPO from doing too much, which because they would actually take so much that it would put so many red blood cells into their blood that their blood would thicken and to the point where their heart couldn't pump it around um, and they'd die of heart attacks. And that was when you would, and that's why, because they couldn't test for EPO, um, they brought in uh, essentially a limit of 50 hematocrit because mm. they could measure that and then make sure that nobody's blood actually got too thick. So they were doing preventions before they could find the actual uh the the way to find the molecule what is the what is uh i know you're not a scientist but what is the actual kind of a normal human average of that by the way because i know that 50 is kind of the yeah key, that's because when someone's being pushed right mm -hmm. so for males person doesn't have an average of 50 no for males it'll be 38 to 50 yeah so you will have um i mean i i sit now naturally at 45 46 sure um so it's it's one of those ones where the human and that's why it's so difficult to measure because we're all different now if you mm. do do a lot of sports and you're tired then it will drop down but you're the majority are probably sitting around 42 43 for women it's 35 to 46 i think um that's the percentage of red blood cells um but yeah for men it's a bit higher uh but yeah so that was the thing they just brought it to what they thought was the, the highest natural kind of cap which was 50 and now you, so you talked about there the extreme guilt that you were experiencing. Was this during and pre being caught? From the moment I did it. Oh, really? The, from the first injection, yeah. So how, uh, how did this, you know, because it's, it's, a, it's a constant burden over your shoulders and then a year after year and then how did you, how were you coping with this mentally? How uh, were you coping? I was coping really badly um, because it, it just meant that uh, you were achieving ever greater success and you're being fettered but i knew that i was cheating so um i still lived that life of off on and when i was on i drink more to just kind of forget and then i'd use sleeping pills to sleep because i couldn't sleep because i was worrying so it just became the psychological damage was was ever escalating to the point where by 2003, 2004, I just hated cycling because I could, I blamed it for what I was becoming. Mm. And I blame myself. For, so I blame myself and I blame the sport and I was just over it. So it was one of those ones where I just, just hated it. Prior to the, um, prior to being um, exposed, shall we say, 
did you see no light at the end of the tunnel as many other cyclists i suppose was there ultimately no way out for the institutionalized aspect of the doping um no that wasn't at the time because we still didn't have the the tests we didn't have the culture was still uh embedded um so there was no way out so when i did get caught because there was a big investigation into my team because there was prolific doping going on in my team um and i was the biggest name in the team um i was reigning world champion i was sort of france stage winner all these different things um so they did a separate investigation on me and bugged my phone for six months and came and arrested me and searched my apartment and did all different things and um they uh i i kind of when i did get caught i was relieved it was i can get out because there was no way i was going to admit it on my own it was too much to lose and it was just too shameful yet actually when i was caught and kind of accepted it it was actually a huge burden lifted off me i was like ah oh. okay so if we kind of link back into where when you had been caught and it was this kind of relief and burden off your shoulders mm-hmm. for the first time you still sought an escape through the form and medium of alcohol is that fair to say yeah definitely how how did you tackle uh, that kind of addiction thereafter kind of you've gone from being this professional sportsman the spotlight on you to dare i say disgraced because the the sport was in kind of disarray at the time i suppose mm. but yeah. it must have been tough on your shoulders specifically yeah i mean i had um so i was banned for two years so i had for once for better term a year um MIA uh so I lost everything and sofa surfed and and then towards the end of that I realized that so as it was 27 28 so I wasn't exactly that old mm-hmm. but um I kind of began to realize that I had a I had an opportunity to fix it to go back and 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 redeem myself but also go back and and try and fix the sport and because I knew what had happened to me uh could have been prevented if we if this if it'd been handled differently and so i thought if i go back and i start to win big races again and and talk about the fact i was doing it clean and i thought that was a message i needed to hear when i was younger because if uh, everyone was telling me it was impossible to win clean and and if i did win clean people would tell me well, imagine what you can do you got this the potential is huge um so i figured i I I had a, a second chance and that kind of kicked me out of my stupor and I then spent a year training and getting myself back to kind of world class fitness and my first race back was Tour de France in 2006 and then that became began this kind of 10 year journey of of working with anti-doping authorities building only a team building a team kind of working with world anti-doping agency doing lots of different things and winning big bike races and being very vocal and writing a book and essentially just trying to fix everything that I fucked up and and I fell in love with the sport of you and it was great but the the alcohol was always there and it's always been there and it's, it's something that is isn't to be perfectly frank it's still not good for me you know it's still it's still there um but that's that's something else but i think what what that that 10 years i think that how i got out of it was having a mission and having a purpose 
and you know and, and starting to feel get my self-esteem back but also know I was, I was writing the wrongs and and it was it was an amazing 10 years those 10 years following kind of coming back from my ban because I genuinely was kind of I mean even Lance Armstrong christened me Saint David um because <laughs> <laughs> dickhead because uh, I because I really was kind of just I, I, I put all my being into kind of fixing it all. So yeah, and that, that's how I overcame that first bit. Was but it, the problem is it, it leaves residues forever, you know. And I don't think I think those ten years allowed me to 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 feel that I was I was correcting it all. But the bottom line is I still live with what I did, which sucks. Uh, how important for you then was having a support bubble at that mm-hmm. time? So from the ban supporting you after that MIA year, let's say. Um, or was it more self-will? Or was it no, more it was, no, you need the bubble. You need that. Yeah. You need you need tender loving care. And I had that from many people, which was which was the greatest thing. Even in Biritz. So when I was arrested in Biritz and locked up and in Biritz was it was my home. I'd become French, you know, all my I'd literally become French. I'd often when I spoke English, I didn't know English words. And so when I was arrested in Biritz and locked up in their jail and then came out, I was so filled with shame because I'd been a darling boy of the town. And, and yeah, it was the loveliest thing. I remember kind of coming out and then I'd go to cafes and people would come up to me and just pat me on the shoulder, people I didn't know. And so, so and it was just, I remember that and thinking, okay, it's, it's not the end of the world. And I remember just being filled with, with their love, um, and that 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 touched me. And then, but for me, the biggest thing was having my my sister and my my mum and all my friends just rally around me. And they they almost, to a certain degree, they let me kind of go off the rails. But it was them that brought me back on about nine months in when they saw that I was going down the pretty steep slope, uh, irretrievable one. And it was it was that bubble that saved me. It kind of got me back out and allowed me to to reset and and find what I was talking about before that purpose and that drive to 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 sort myself out and and have that second chance and take it. Uh, so yeah, it it would have been impossible on my own. I'd have destroyed myself on my own. No, absolutely, and and that's why I suppose we have seen it before um, with yeah. with um, you know sadly some cyclists who aren't with us still, mm. and and that's how how important it is for you. And I'm pleased that you yeah. did have that support bubble for mm. sure. Yeah, I mean, cycling is a pretty dark sport from that era. Three of yeah. two of my teammates effectively committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jose Jimenez died. Pantani died. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, there's no other sport in the world that has that list of damage. Um, uh, elite athletes just destroying themselves. So you return to the sport with this new mission on your shoulders. Uh, and as you say, almost to overcome the burden of your past, but ultimately mm-hmm. to drive the sport in a new direction. Yeah. There are a variety of professional um, athletes within the peloton uh, who probably hadn't touched uh, any of the substances. Mm-hmm. How did they welcome you back? I, I, I was welcomed back with open arms by almost everybody mainly because the race I came back to the Tour de France in 2006, before it even started, there was a new, huge doping scandal, mm-hmm. op- Operation Puerto, and it took out Jan Ulrich, even Basso, and, and nobody wanted to talk about it um, because 
the, the omerta, as they called it, the silence was so strong within the peloton. And so I stood up and spoke about it. And immediately before I'd even started that first race back, I'd become the spokesman for the peloton regards doping and anti-doping. And I think in many ways, the peloton was grateful to have me as a firewall, who was the only person willing to talk about it and talk about the situation the sport was in and, and how it was possible to fix it. And there was also, I think, I obviously there were a lot of people that didn't like me, um, which is normal. But within most of the peloton, they respected the fact that in many ways I was kind of a poster boy for what could happen because I'd been, I'd won to, to the front stages clean. I'd won races, some of the biggest races in the world clean and then doped. And so they knew I wasn't one of those donkeys that had turned into a racehorse. I was just one of those, another professional cyclist who had made mistakes. Um, so yeah, but it was, it wasn't easy. It was cause that's, again, you're going in and you're filled with shame. You're embarrassed, you know, cause you know, I know there were riders that would never dope. And yeah, so I was then having to race alongside them and with it being public knowledge of everything I'd done. So, and I think part of what I was doing was trying to, trying to gain their confidence back as well. So it wasn't just about the public or, or about the younger riders. It was trying, trying to, to show, gain the respect back of my peers. Absolutely. And, and you continue that, um, you continue to talk about it now, which is obviously really important. And since retiring, though, you've now found yourself at the forefront of many things. Naturally, this is still one of them, but your, your clothing brand as well, which, le- which is now leaning towards sustainability, which is obviously massive, which is yeah. really, really important. And I'm, I'm a big fan of. Um, do you ever have this or did you have this thought when you retired of the what comes next? Um, because I, I've spoken to a lot of rugby players about this. Mm. And, you know, that you devote your life to professional sport. And luckily that sport has access to restart rugby. And I know you're familiar with the mm. RPA and, and the direction that they can help them and support them. Uh, did you know where you wanted to go? I, I had no idea. And, and unlike the RPA, who are a brilliant organization, cycling doesn't have um, a transitional culture. It's when it's over, it's over. It's like probably an old amateur sport in that respect. Uh, and it's it's a great detriment to to the sport as a whole, the athletes, because the moment you stop, then you've got to restart, uh, and there's no support. And it's not just the support of finding a new pro- profession or training or uh, kind of giving you a foot up to to job opportunities or apprenticeships or education. Uh, it's the cord is cut, and and that was something I was very aware of because I I experienced it when I was banned. That uh, all of a sudden you, you're in the the real world, and it's a very different world. You know, it's it's, and for many, for all professional athletes, it's it's a really weird one because you spend your teens and your twenties uh, at the top of your profession, and your I always said it's, it's the greatest sadness I find for for many professional athletes because you're just starting to master, you're entering full mastery towards the end mm. psychologically. And, but then your body starts letting go. So there's this, there's this wonderful kind of horrible experience where suddenly you see everything so clearly. You've, you've un, you know how to train, you know how to race, you, you've learned the ropes, and then all of a sudden physically you can't match that mental power and, and training. And so you stop in your early 30s, mid-30s, and that's just when all your, your friends from school or most people are starting to find their feet in their professions 
and you are effectively like an 18 year old out of school and have no idea what to do so I was very aware of that and I and I thought I want to do something that's that's got legs that's that's long term because I was 37 when I stopped and I thought well I've probably got a good 30 years left of working like doing something I'm passionate about so I said, what can that be? And it was, the, that's why I started chapter three, because also in the final year, everyone's like, what's the next chapter? What's the next chapter? Uh, and I was like, well, I can actually finally bridge that gap between that art and creativity that I let go when I was 18 to become a professional cyclist and apply it into, into technical sportswear, into cycling as a whole. And, and build a brand that isn't that is more than the sport, and and I, it's going to take a long time. We're seven years in, and it's I, I anticipate it will be ten years before we start to get some proper traction, and then we'll start to kick off. But it's been it's been a joy. It's been incredibly challenging because I've started from zero at thirty seven. But I think that's I've done that because I was very aware of the length left if I'm if I'm lucky enough but as you're saying one of the things I, I ran for the president of the professional cyclist union yeah. uh, in well 2016 maybe because again it was trying to fix the sport because I could see the union did nothing and one of my big within my mandate was this idea that we would build this this transitional um, process for professional cyclists uh, and for and I say this with absolute legitimacy, not just transition, but rehabilitation, kind of going back into, it's almost building that ability to go back into the real world because almost all professional cyclists I've spoken to who are at the top have been at the top. They say it's five years to, to, to kind of come back out of it. And so it's a, and it's a very challenging five years. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as we kind of unwind to the kind of final, uh, final, I've got two questions that I'll ask you at the end. I ask everybody, mm-hmm. but one of the, another feather to your cap is uh, in the commentating world. Oh, yeah. I, want to, I want to ask you about this because can you ever switch off from any cycling race that is ever going on? Because you have to know everything basically. <laughs> you say that. Uh, <laughs> no, that's why I've got a brilliant uh, Commentator, I'm co-commentator. I'm the colour uh, in Ned, Ned Bolting. In Ned Bolting, who is on yeah. top of everything. In in commentary, you have two roles. You have the lead commentator, who brings the colour, who brings the 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 emotion, um, and anchors the narrative. Um, and it's an incredibly skillful and, and trained professional job. For me, I'm the co-commentator, the colour, the kind of pundit. It's I talk about what I see. And sure. I read the race and I anticipate things and I bring anecdotes or I have experiences. And so my commentary job has been an absolute joy because it wasn't something I'd ever planned or even considered because I almost wanted to cut completely free of the world of cycling. I don't watch pro bike racing unless I'm doing my commentary job, uh, very rarely anyway. And so it's, it's kept me in the sport and allowed me to really fall in love with it again kind of because my final year again I was tired and it was done and I had the the advantage and it's been to my benefit is that all my friends all my all my friends from school or people I hang out with know nothing about cycling so I'd always have to explain it to them and I used to always say to them look if you if you go and watch a bike race with me and sit on the sofa I'll explain it all to you as it's unfolding 
And so I'd always done that kind of for my friends to try and explain why I loved it so much and why it was so intricate and why it was such an amazing sport. So when it came to the commentary job, I was just doing what I'd always done for my friends. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. And, it's, uh, and I have such a, a good time with Ned, who's become a dear friend. And it's, uh, that was definitely not on the cards. And I'm so thankful I've had the opportunity to do it because it's a, it's a great job. And of course, you've got the, your podcast with Ned as well. Yeah, Never Strays Far podcast, which is just essentially allows us to carry on talking yeah, about exactly. the things that we can't talk about when we're commentating on the bike race. Yeah, exactly. So it's our little... Things that are vetted by ITV. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my final two questions. Yeah, absolutely just first our brain. One, the, fir- the first question is then, how do you maintain your mental well-being? What, what, is it, do you, what do you do yourself to make sure that you stay in, in touch with yourself and stay in check? Not enough, to be frank. Uh, at the moment, life's flat out and you know, three young kids. Um, I'm building my business, which is a very young company. And I, if there's one thing that's missing from my life at the moment, it's just finding, making time for myself. And I, I, I realize now that I used to find that from riding my bike, from training. It used to be my, my meditation. I mean, I'm terrible at meditating, always have been, and I've tried a few times. But what I do know is that I, I essentially meditate when I do sport. I kind of That's where I just disappear inside my head and, and find peace. And if I'm not doing that, then I don't find it. And, and so I, I'm very aware that right now I, I need to find it because it's, it's detrimental to me. And yet I'm, I'm stuck in that hamster wheel of, of life. And it's really hard to kind of break free of it. So it's, um, it's challenging. And I'm not one of those persons that says, oh, no, I get up every morning, meditate for 20 minutes. Or it's, I wish I could. Or journal. I wish I could journal. I don't. You know, it's, so sounds, a like lot a, of sounds like a 10-day holiday is needed. Yeah, tell me about it. That would be lovely. <laughs> leave the kids at home. <laughs> Just leave um, everyone. My final question then, David, is what does the word headstrong mean to you? Yeah, what's the word headstrong? I, um, I, I suppose it's, it's changing for me. Just going off the back of that, that previous answer, I used to think it was not giving up. It was, you know, I was very good at being what I would define as headstrong, which was I'd define a, define a goal and I wouldn't give up until I achieved it. And I thought that was headstrong. You know, that was, that's what I admired and that's what I thought it, it was all about. But as I get older now and, and start to see kind of how, what life is like, and I think Headstrong is being able to, to stop, to, to have the ability to, to just pause. And, and it's the greatest strength is to say no, is to just, is to give yourself some time and to break free. And so I'm having that and I'm going through that realization now. So I'm still mixed up. I've still got my old headstrongness that I'm not going to give up until I achieve, until chapter three has achieved what I know it can achieve. Mm. And that, and that with the kids, we're great parents and that, that we do all these things right. But at the same time, it's that can become uh, a negative kind of way of living. And so I think for me, headstrong is my realization now is, is that I've got to slow down and that I've got to, got to uh, be kinder to myself, um, which is the hardest thing because I've never done that in my whole life and I'm 44. So if I can get to that point, I'll be so happy 
that I'm kind of, I've done it. I've, I've become, I've managed to manage my mind. Amazing. Yeah. That's really, really great. Thank you, David, so much for chatting to me. I really appreciate yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I wish you every success with uh, chapter three. Um, and as you say, there's no, there's no shortcut in the business world. So, oh, tell uh, me about as, it. You, as you know, so yeah, it's an exciting journey, no doubt though. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. And that's it for this episode of Headstrong. A massive thank you to David for joining me on this episode. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. And I'd like to thank him again for being so incredibly honest and open and talking about what can only be a very challenging subject. If you did enjoy the episode, please do subscribe, leave a review, put a rating down and share it with your family and friends. Or don't do any of those, whatever you want. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It means a lot. And I hope you have a wonderful week and I will see you next week for another episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.